0: be reading this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and I'm going to begin in verse 30, and we'll read this morning through verse 50. After they, I'm sorry, they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him... They divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. From the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for elijah immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink but the rest of them said let us see whether elijah will come to save him and jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit amen let's pray O God, all your word is holy, all of it, every word, every phrase, every sentence, paragraph, chapter, book. But we come this morning to the holy of holies in your scriptures, the most sacred place. We do so with reverence, with trembling, and asking, pleading this morning, O oh God, let us not sin against you or your Son by failing to see and to hear what it is your Spirit has for us. May we know, believe in, and love your Son, Jesus, in his name we pray, amen. The theme and the point of the entire Gospel of Matthew is found in verse 37 in the words that were placarded above the head of Christ on the cross. And this is the theme This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The crucifixion of Christ is, with the resurrection, the mountaintop, the plateau of the gospel. It is the mountaintop and the plateau of the scriptures. And even though, by God's grace, those who trust in Christ, the best is ahead for us in the kingdom... The cross of Christ we will forever look back on and sing with angels. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. It is awesome to be here this morning. And think about it. Not a Sunday goes by when we don't pray in light of the cross, when we don't reflect on the cross, when we don't sing about the cross. I trust there never will be, ever, a time when we as Christ people come together and we don't in some way, shape, or form reflect upon and refer to the cross of Christ. But this cross, this symbol now that is around necks of billions of people and the most recognized symbol in the history of humanity... How is it that the cross of Christ can somehow strangely become unfamiliar to us? And even to we who have professed Jesus for many years, the cross can become, oh, I don't know, old or dull to us. Not intentionally, perhaps, but because God has blessed us so that we are people who bask in the shadow of the cross and the grace of the cross and the blood of Christ that these holy things can become to us common things and so this morning is an opportunity for us for those who have trusted in Christ and those who have not to understand the cross rightly not fully no way not happening not in one sermon not in a million sermons No event has been written about more. No event has been meditated upon more. No event in human history has been sung about more than the cross of Christ and what we have read this morning. And the sufferings of Christ and his crucifixion, as you know, is recorded not only here in the Gospel of Matthew, but in Mark and in Luke and in the Gospel of John. And each of those Gospels provide us with the same truth with varying detail. This morning, as we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to reserve and keep ourselves here. And the emphasis of the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end is to demonstrate initially to a primarily Jewish audience but of course not only for Jews but for all who will hear it to demonstrate that this Jesus of Nazareth this this country boy if you will is in fact the long awaited promised messiah the descendant of David the servant of God the Christ the king not only of the Jews but because of what all the prophets had said and because of God's purposes for Israel and the descendant of David, the king of the world, the king of us all. And the way that the Holy Spirit through Matthew wants to demonstrate to us and to all that will read and hear that this Jesus of Nazareth is your king before whom you must bow, whom you must believe in order to be saved, and whom you must worship. The way he demonstrates that, the Spirit, is by bringing forward one prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, scripture after another, in waves. And this morning, we are going to approach the account of the crucifixion of Christ by giving attention to this, because this is what Matthew does. He records for us the crucifixion, the sufferings and crucifixion of our Lord overtly, in a way, that's making connections to various prophecies, in particular, and especially Psalm 22. Now, I don't know how this sermon Outline's going to work, I'll just tell you up front. Um, I, I'm going to look at 10 fulfillments of Old Testament scripture in the crucifixion of Christ. But even as I say that, I, I'm tempted, maybe you're tempted to think, oh, we're going to go academic. Or we're going to go book. Well, yeah, we are going to go book. But I just want to remind you what this book is. This is not a dictionary. This is not written by any mere man. This is the holy word of God. And we need to remember this morning that, for example, Psalm 22 this morning, which Dave read, was composed by David, David, king of Israel. No one disputes that David lived and reigned a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. And while we do not have a copy of Psalm 20 new, 22 from David's day, we do in the Dead Sea scrolls. You can go online, find this, <clears throat> excuse me, along with the Isaiah scroll. We have a copy of Psalm 22 from the years in which Jesus lived and died. So if you're here this morning, you're a skeptic. And someone must have composed this after the time of Jesus and the crucifixion. No. And all of Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, will tell you, no, we have the psalm from the first opening years of the first century. We have Psalm 22. And think with me that we have a psalm from around the time of Jesus that was written a thousand years before by David. In addition, we have references here to Isaiah. Isaiah ministered roughly 800 years before Jesus. God went to great lengths through his spirit by his prophets to record for lost humanity how it was you could know when your king came, when your redeemer would come, when your messiah, when your king, when your lord, when your savior would come. How would you know? Because, but make no mistake, God is... By his spirit this morning, making a claim on every single one of us this morning. You must worship my son. You must believe in him. You must acknowledge him as your king. That's a serious claim because that will mess with your life. That means your life and my life is not our own. It means we can't do what we want. It means that we must know this king. We must know his ways and know his commands. So that's a serious, serious claim. How is it then that God could make sure that you would know who the right king is, because we know Satan wants to put forward all kinds of false pretenders. So in light of that now, consider with me ten fulfillments of messianic prophecies in the crucifixion of Christ. First, in verse 33... We're going to start there in verse 33 this morning. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, that was a outcrop of rock just outside the city walls. Some of you maybe have seen pictures of that, what we think is that location, and it actually looks like the form of a skull. It was strategically placed along one of the main routes into Jerusalem, And those who were citizens of Jerusalem, imagine this, moms and dads, were accustomed over the years under the Roman occupation that when you would go in and out of the city, you could probably expect that there would be a piece of wood up on that outcrop with a carcass hanging on it, maybe some birds on it. Because there and all around Jerusalem, Ever since Rome had occupied, anyone who dared lift up their fist against Rome might find themselves crucified on one of those main routes so that everyone going in and going out would get a lesson. This is what happens to you if you mess with the Roman Empire. It's this place of death. It's a place of blood. It's an ugly place. Even the hill Perhaps, if it's where we think, it even looked like a skull. And that was not incidental. That was not incidental in relation to the fulfillment of Scripture. Because the Old Testament law... Jesus, or rather, in Old Testament law, the sin sacrifice had to be brought outside... And firstly, this morning, in fulfillment of God's law, Jesus was brought outside the city to die. Jesus was brought outside the city to die. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, reflecting on the Old Testament law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Hebrews 13 summarizes it this way the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate this is for example expressly commanded in Numbers chapter 19, verse 2. I'm going to move quickly, so you may not have time to turn there. Listen, Numbers chapter 19, verse 2. God said, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded. Speak to the sons of Israel that you take to you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest and it shall be brought outside the camp And be slaughtered in his presence. The sin offering. Various offerings that the people were to worship God with. But the sin that recognized God's provision of atonement for the people's sin. That animal. Its blood. After its death and its slaughter was sprinkled on the offering. But as the embodiment of the imputed sins of the people. That animal was cast out and its suffering and its slaughter would be away and outside it's not incidental verse 33 that they brought jesus outside to the golgotha place of the skull secondly in fulfillment of psalm 69 verse 21 Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall. That fulfills Psalm 69, verse 21. There, if you want to turn there with me for a moment, we'll be mostly referencing Psalm 22. Another prophetic psalm by David. Verse 20 reads, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy and there was none for comforters, but I found none. This is the experience of Jesus. And then in verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. This may have been a slight mercy, Some have speculated that the women who uh, attended Jesus and the disciples, including Jesus's mother, Mary, and Mary Magdalene, and other women who provided for the basic needs of the mission, as it were. It, It may be that they had offered this gall or this myrrh to the soldiers and This was such a brutal, excruciating experience. Jesus had already been scourged. He was already so weak, he couldn't even carry his own cross. They had to enlist Simon of Cyrene. And maybe the myrrh was offered possibly by the women, but wherever it came from, the idea was this man was going to suffer, but it might just take the edge off a little slightly. It's not incidental. It's fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. We see that in verse 34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. The second half of verse 34 is our third fulfillment. After tasting it, Jesus was unwilling to drink. He let it come to his lips, but then he spit it out. What's going on there? Thirdly, in fulfillment of Isaiah 50, verse 7, and Isaiah 53, verse 11, Jesus determined to know fully the weight of sin and the judgment of God. I know it's a long point. I'll say it again. In fulfillment of Isaiah 50, verse 7, remember hundreds of years before the life and death of the Lord. But there we learn, we'll see in a moment, that Jesus, the Messiah, was determined to fully know, to be conscious of the weight and the sin, rather the weight of sin and the judgment of God. Under this third fulfillment, I want to consider just two aspects. First of all, he was determined. Turn to Isaiah chapter 50 with me. Isaiah 50, verse 6. There, the servant of the Lord and the servant in in Isaiah is the title of the Messiah. And this would have been in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, even great kings emperors, their chief servant or slave would be the most honored in the kingdom. He'd be the one with all the authority. Joseph, many, many years earlier, would have been an example of this. Joseph wasn't Pharaoh, but Joseph represented all the authority and the majesty of Pharaoh. So the servant in Isaiah is is God's servant is God's right-hand man he's God's king for his people and here in Isaiah 50 verse 6 and 7 the Messiah the servant says I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord my God helps me therefore I am not disgraced therefore I have set my face like flint And I know I will not be ashamed. At the cross, Jesus is not a victim. We've said this many times. But if you have this idea of of how terrible, it is terrible. But if you think of this as like a car accident and Jesus was a hapless victim just going by and, and Satan somehow grabbed him, you are sorely mistaken. We have learned that our King, our Lord, our Master knew why he came, knew what the Scriptures said, had said repeatedly to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He knows what he's doing. His face is determined. He's not wavering. He's not anxious. He's not terrified. he's experiencing pain like any man he doesn't enjoy the pain he doesn't want the suffering he doesn't want in his holiness to bear the weight of sin but he wants to do this because this is his father's will and this is the only way the only way by which Jesus will crush satan's head put death under his feet and save his people from their sins he knows what he's doing, and he's going to do it. And he is not going to let any dulling medication even slightly dim his, dull his senses. He's going to do this. He's not going to waver. He's determined, and then he's secondly determined to know. <clears throat> Look with me at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse 11. There, God says about his servant, as a result of the anguish of his soul, God speaking about the servant, the Messiah, and his sufferings and his death, as a result of the anguish of his soul. We saw that anguish at Gethsemane. He, the servant, the Messiah, the Christ, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. By his knowledge? You ever wondered what that is? By his knowledge? Knowledge of what? The Bible? Oh, he knows the Bible. But of his knowing by his knowing, with all of his perfect humanity, the full, unmitigated, unreserved, unchecked, unqualified justice of God upon him for your sins and mine. He must know It's by this knowledge that the righteous one will justify the many. He must know the suffering. This past Tuesday evening, the men together, we studied the very difficult doctrine of hell. The Bible teaches that hell is a place that God has prepared where those apart from Christ Will suffer the just judgment of God consciously, consciously, eternally, physically. Even here we see that the judgment of God must be consciously borne by Christ. And so this is why He refuses the gall, the, the the wine that will dull his senses. He will let nothing keep him from knowing the full justice of God and thereby becoming the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was determined to know the full weight of sin and the judgment of God. Fourthly, in fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 16, you can turn with me now to Psalm 22 as we will be here for a few moments. Psalm 22 verse 16 In fulfillment of Psalm 22:16 Jesus was crucified having his hands and feet pierced. Psalm 22:16 there, the psalmist says, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. It's not accidental that Jesus was crucified, it is a fulfillment of the prophecy of David. Ultimately, this prophecy of the Spirit. The king could not, would not die any other way than to have his hands and his feet pierced and to be hung on a tree, a piece of wood, as the cursed one. Accursed, not because of anything in him, but accursed for us. Fifthly, in fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18, Jesus had his clothes. His clothes were divided among the soldiers, and they cast lot for his clothes. The soldiers cast lot for Jesus's clothes and divided them among them. It's a detail that if you're just reading the Gospel of Matthew, you you think you're just learning about first century A.D., Roman soldier practices. These guys have crucified countless people. This is just their job, as gruesome and as brutal as it is to think about that. Pilate, the governor, tells them, under whom their authority they are, you are to crucify this man, this woman. They crucify that man or that woman. It's just work. It's nothing personal. And uh, they living in a place where all the populace hates their guts. These are Roman soldiers. How did they land up here? They end up here. They, they probably didn't have any other way to get a living. So here they are in this, in their minds, this miserable place with these miserable people who hate them and uh, doing miserable work. At the very least, maybe one of the kickbacks is, is they can have a little fun seeing who gets whose clothes. And we have a hard time in our day and age of of an abundance of clothing, of thinking before the Industrial Revolution how much labor went into the making of just one garment of clothing. Clothes were extremely costly. Clothes were probably more like what we think of as cars in terms of cost. So for the soldiers, we, we may be thinking, who who wants someone's... Dirty, grimy, bloody clothes. These are valuable items. And verse 18 of Psalm 22, David prophesied concerning the Messiah, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Those soldiers didn't know it, but they were fulfilling scripture. They were by their actions confirming what God had said would happen to the Messiah. And it's yet one more evidence binding upon each one of our consciences here this morning. Six, in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. There we are back in Isaiah 53. You can keep your bookmark if you want in Psalm 22. Isaiah 53 again. Verse 9. Jesus was, we're told by Matthew, was crucified between two robbers. It's possible that these were Barabbas' accomplices. I never really considered that. It's rather obvious, but until study this week, someone pointed that out. Barabbas belonged in the middle between these two. Who knows what they did exactly, but we learn elsewhere that they were notorious. These were scoundrels, godless men, cursing Christ, true wicked criminals. These were not nice men. Unlike Jesus, they were not innocent victims of Roman oppression, And Jesus was crucified instead of Barabbas at the request of Jesus' own people. And in being crucified between these two robbers, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53, verse 9, which says his grave was assigned with wicked men. Now you say, wait a minute, this is the cross, this isn't the grave yet. These three guys are going to die together on these crosses, and as far as the Roman soldiers are concerned, their bodies are going to be thrown out like carcasses in, in Gehenna, in the valley, burned They're not going to get a nice grave. They don't have a fund for respectfully burying the remains of criminals. So, de facto, in Jesus, by Jesus being crucified, while he's hanging there between these two thugs, it's a given to everyone there that the body of Jesus is going to be cast away like dog meat, possibly literally with the wild dogs in the area. To be dishonored, his grave is assigned with wicked men by nature of his hanging between these two wicked men. His lot is with them. His bones, doubtless, are going to go where their bones go. Of course, we know, as we'll learn in the coming Sundays, God had a different plan, and the second half of verse 9 will be fulfilled, yet he was with a rich man in his death. No one expected that, Joseph of Arimathea. But while Jesus is hanging there, nobody else knows what's in Joseph of Arimathea's head and heart. His grave at that point is assigned with wicked men. Seventh, in Matthew verses 39 through 44, we learn of a great deal of mocking and of scorn of Christ. He is scorned by... Nearly everyone, except that very small group of onlookers, the women, the, these godly women, and the Apostle John, who was who were there. But in back to Matthew chapter twenty-seven, just to remind us of the brutal mocking that Jesus received. They, the robbers. Rather, those passing by, verse 39, were hurling abuse at him. So, And remember, Jerusalem at this time of the Passover is flooded with people, perhaps a million people, because everyone has to come from everywhere in Israel to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. They're coming even from other nations like Simon of Cyrene. And so the city is packed and there's a constant flow of people even early in the morning along this roadside. So our Lord is is suffering naked, humiliated on a cross while hundreds and thousands of people are going back and forth. It's no accident they put him where they did. And these people, some of them doubtless, who a week earlier Not even a week earlier, hailed him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now are cursing him, hurling abuse at him, verse 39. Hurling abuse at him. They're getting their kicks out of this. Wagging their heads. It's a sign of of just mockery, of just derision, of scorn. They twist, verse 40, what he had said. Jesus had spoken of his of the temple being torn down and rebuilt in 3 days but he had been speaking of his own body They ignorant as they were mocked him saying that thinking that Jesus had said he would destroy the temple itself and the temple was massive and it would seem like nobody could destroy it By that time Herod had built it up Herod the great had built it it was this massive massive compound. No one probably believed that it actually could be taken apart until the Romans did in 70 A.D. They mock him, if you are the son of God. Notice they have clarity on Jesus' claim. Come down from the cross. Chief priests, they joined in. The scribes, the elders, these religious types the pharisees sadducees all of them who usually were at each other's throats they are united and having fun in mocking jesus notice verse 42 they mock him he is the king of israel what a cruelty he is their king and they are mocking him again come down from the cross and we will believe in him don't miss that at the end of verse 42 if Verse 37 is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Make no mistake that the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Matthew is after belief in your heart and mind. That's the point. Continues, verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he now delights in him. This is all fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. And Psalm 109, verse 25. Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. The Messiah there says, all who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their heads, saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue or let, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. I don't know if you pick up on this, but there is such a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, that not only is the are the details, they're wagging their heads, they're mocking him, but in fact, the chief priests and the elders and those abusing Jesus, actually, verse 43, quote from Psalm 22. Incredible. The fulfillment of Psalm 22 is in their actions, and they're actually quoting Psalm 22 with their mouths. Number eight, we learn in verse 45 that from the sixth hour, that's about noon. So the brightest point of the day, the high point of the sun, it's Middle East. I mean, this is a little tough for us here in New England as we think, Darkness covers the land. That's pretty typical. What's the big deal? Could be clouds, could be fog, could be, you know, snow, could be just short days. We're kind of used to darkness. This is the Middle East, the middle of the day. It does not It does snow, it does rain in Jerusalem, but not a lot. It's a arid climate. Everybody's used to the middle of the day being so bright that you don't even want to look up. And it's that time of the day when darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. For three hours, for that last three hours, there is darkness that just comes. It is a supernatural darkness. You can't explain it by any event what's going on there. It's a preview of the day of the Lord, a day of judgment. In Amos chapter 8, verse 9, this is one of the allusions to the day of the Lord. And there in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, God says, The Lord declares, I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. hundreds of years before the death of Christ and God through Amos prophesying that at noon God would make the earth dark and I want to fast forward a little bit we'll, we'll look at this passage next week what what's going on with the tombs being opened verse 52 but I just want to plant this thought in your head that at the cross of Christ at the death of Christ Everyone must decide to do what with Jesus, what God would, what God wants. In other words, He wants you to believe. And just to help us move us to motivation, God gives a preview of what's coming, depending on what your choice is: darkness, earthquake, doom for those who do not believe in Christ, and those raised as a preview of what will occur for those who do believe in God's Son. Just a little preview of what's coming. But this darkness at noon was just not happenstance. This was prophesied and this was fulfilled at the death of Christ on the cross. Ninthly this morning, just two more fulfillments we want to look at together. In fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus experienced God-forsakenness on the cross. Of course, Psalm 22, verse 1, there David says, and again it's a messianic prophetic psalm, the Messiah would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Jesus, in fulfillment of that verse, experienced God-forsakenness forsakenness on the cross. Now here we enter into some mystery of the Trinity and of the person of Christ. Some of us are troubled by this. We think Well, Jesus has said that I and the Father am one. And if we understand what the Bible has to say about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, we have one God, three persons, but our one God is indivisible. He is not parts or pieces, three persons, but one God. So here you then move to the mystery of the Incarnation. That the eternal Son of God, one with the Father, the Son of God, God the Son, took to himself a true humanity. He became a man conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And this mystery of the incarnation that the eternal Son of God, one person, takes to himself now a true human nature so that he is one person, Two natures, divine and human. Mystery, yes, but this is Christianity 101. And if we do not understand this, and if we do not stick to this, the whole house falls down. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Only God the Son could do this. Only the God the Son in the flesh lived as a man. He's not a modified man. He's not kind of a man. He is a true man in every sense, only different from us without sin. And the man, Jesus Christ, is truly suffering. He's a true man. We minimize this, I think, sometimes unintentionally in evangelical theology, in our effort to emphasize the divinity of the Son, which is good, never never. Stop that. Keep emphasizing the divinity. That is true. That is who he is. But we sometimes, in our effort to emphasize his divinity, we neglect what the scriptures have to say regarding his very, very true and real humanity. So that as Hebrews says, he, was, he suffered, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He had to learn as a boy. Yes, the incarnate son of God had to learn. He prayed. He ate. He got hungry. Divine nature doesn't get hungry, doesn't need to sleep. So this is a real man. This is God the Son incarnate in flesh, the man suffering on the cross, bearing our sins. And of course, pertaining to his divine nature, there is no rift in godhead. Impossible. God does not change. But in the mystery of the Incarnation, Jesus is a real man becoming the substitute and taking our sins upon himself. And he's receiving in himself hell for us. The justice of God. And so on the cross, he knows in his very being what it is to feel truly forsaken of God because he is the embodiment of your sin and mine, pinned, hanging like a piece of meat on that cross. And the worst part of it all for Christ, the worst of it all on the cross, is he experiences the forsakenness that you and I would only know if we were to spend eternity in hell. He's never known a moment in which he didn't have his father's face shining upon him. But as he becomes the substitute for our sins, necessarily in holiness and justice, the father turns his face away. And so Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Verse 46 of Matthew 27, my God, my God, Eli, 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 Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that Jesus doesn't know, he knows why, but that psalm, that line, is expressing the reality of his experience at that moment as our sin bearer. Jesus experienced God forsakenness on the cross. And finally, in verse 50, after those standing by continued to mock him, some were curious. They thought he was praying for Elijah, but this probably is a continuation of scorning. Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. Now think about it. He's been silent as a lamb, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. He hasn't responded to Pilate except on a very few specific occasions when he, agreed, when he confessed that he is the king. He has not protested. He has gone resolute. He has, with true definition of manly courage, has borne up under it all. He's not yelled at the men who are crucifying him or scourging him. He's been silent under it all, perhaps crying out in pain. He's a true man. But his weakened body, his voice, he's dry, hanging like a dried piece of meat out there in the day. And he musters the courage, the strength, and with all the authority of his divine majesty on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice. And of course, we know from the other gospels, what he cried out is, it is finished. That was not a sigh of relief. That was not a giving up the ghost That was a victory declaration of the king of kings and lord of lords. And how appropriate is it that he's being crucified on a place that looks like a skull? Because in that moment, the king is actually conquering death. Satan, the grave. He shouted out with a loud voice. And that is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Verse 12, Isaiah 53, verse 12, there God says concerning his servant that his servant would be victorious. He's going to be pierced. He's going to be scorned, despised. All of these horrible things are going to happen to him. But God, through Isaiah, prophesies and declares, behold, my servant, God says, the Messiah will prosper. He's not going to fail. He's not going to flop. He's not going to choke. He's not going to expel, expire. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, that's verse 13. Verse 12 is, I will divide for him a portion with the many. In other words, he's going to win. He's going to win the battle. He will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He's the victorious champion. Jesus cried out victoriously on the cross, securing redemption for his people. We have examined just some, not all, of the Old Testament revelations from God as to how someone would know when the true king would come. And I submit to you this morning that the evidence is overwhelming. Prophecies declared by men living a thousand years like David before the life and death of Jesus, some 800 years like Isaiah before the life and death of Jesus, down to the most minute detail, casting lots for his garments, wine, vinegar to his lips, Every one of these details, it's not incidental. It's not just a curiosity. It is a demand by the Holy Spirit that you and I and every single heart, man, woman, boy and girl, bow and acknowledge this is your king and here is your savior. Believe in him. Believe in him. Don't wait. Don't dawdle. Don't Go back and forth between various opinions. The Spirit of God, on the behalf of your Father in heaven, has given to you evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence in kindness and mercy that this Jesus of Nazareth, this, this Jewish man who lived some 2,000 years ago, is in fact the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of God become a man. He is your savior. He did this for you and for me and for all who will believe. He interceded for us and on the cross became the atonement for our sins. So that believing in Jesus Christ, our sins might be counted by God as having been dealt with by Jesus in that moment of time on the cross. And so that you as believing in Jesus, united by faith, might be counted in the presence of God as receiving Jesus's life of perfect obedience so that you might be one with God's son, reconciled to the father for the son was raised. We don't have to wait till Easter to get to that good news. He was raised as a sign of God's justifying him The penalty really was paid. It really was done in full. So that as you believe in him, as you are brought into union with Christ, the Father receives you. The Father welcomes you. And he doesn't know your sin anymore because they've been removed as far as the east is from the west. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That Christ was crucified according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that on the third day he rose again. We must believe. And perhaps in closing, the best response is once again in the mouth of an observer. Verse 54. We'll look at this, God willing, next week a little more. But the centurion this hardened, battle-hardened, calloused man who had witnessed countless crucifixions, whose heart was closed to the screams and cries. They they, they didn't mean anything. Screes and uh, cries of crucified people were like like the sound of road noise. Hardened heart. No qualms about crucifying this Jewish man. Verse 54, when he, those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, and here's our confession this morning. Truly, truly, this was, and this morning we say, is the Son of God. Let's worship him. And so our God, our Father, we do. We worship Jesus. However weakly, however insufficiently, we worship Jesus. We exalt in you, Lord Jesus. We hail you. We bow before you. We are in awe of you. You are awesome, truly awesome. We, don't, we know we don't begin to understand the sufferings that you endured. But we thank you, O oh God, our Father and gracious Spirit, for your plan revealed hundreds of years before. All of the details, the markers by which we would know when our true King would come, your Son. I pray for any here this morning who have yet to believe in Jesus as their Savior, that today they would believe, that today would be a day of salvation, that each one here would know the grace of God, being forgiven of our sins because they've recounted to Christ, and being received, Father, to you in love, just as you have received your Son in love as he sits right now at your right hand. Our hearts are full. We bless you, O God, for your mysterious and marvelous plan. And we hail Jesus, King of the Jews, King of kings, King of all. In his name, amen.